Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about playtesting. Did I mention that we're talking about playtesting? Playtesting, maybe the most important part of the the entire process, the the process that, that takes your game from nothing to an actual something, the beautiful grind that it is. And we're talking to Ased Qureshi. Ased, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's good, man. So you're over there from Haunted Castle Gaming, and you got this really interesting CCG coming out per- here pretty soon. I think it's is it an alpha or beta. Where, where's it? Where, where's it in testing? Uh, Delta, so Zeta, we, where's it at? <laughs> we just finished alpha completely, and uh, we're starting the launch of beta. Come uh, the pre-release is the eighth and ninth, and then the product goes to store shelves on the fifteenth. Very, very cool, man. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about your game and kind of your process yes. and all that as we go, and and also the differences between CCGs, LCGs, and regular, you know, normal old school style bo- uh, board games. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I think you're you're going to provide a real interesting insight because you've done both. You've kind of seen things from a lot of different angles, and now you're publishing uh, this game. And and so I'm excited to talk to you. But first, before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. Uh, so it's a long story. It started when I was a little kid. My second oldest brother, Freed, he used to, whenever we go visit someone's house and there's nothing to do, he liked to kill time by making these small little RPGs. Yeah. Uh, and I loved it. I was like, this is the coolest thing. So when I grew up, I started making my own RPGs for me and my friends to play. Uh, and then at one point, one of my cousins, Ovid, asked me, what makes you happy? And I couldn't answer that question. It took me three years, and finally, one day, I was like, cards, <laughs> playing cards. I love cards, shuffling them, all that kind of stuff. So I took my love of cards and my desire to make games, just kind of combined them, and started making uh, CCGs. The first hundred or so failed, <laughs> but eventually, I was like, I want to take one to publish, and that's where we're at now. Very cool. Well, I don't know if they failed. You just figured out 100 games that didn't that didn't work, right? You're like yeah. the uh, light bulb story. You know, you found 100, exactly. 100 light bulbs that didn't work right. And so, yeah, but you've also done like board game stuff too as well, right? Yeah, I've made a couple of board games, uh, a couple of party games. I tried my own murder mystery. Um, yeah, and I still have ideas here and there. But uh, yeah, that's I've been focusing a lot on the CCG. Right yeah, now. very cool. Now, before the show, we were talking about kind of how your background as a software engineer has helped mm-hmm. you in this now, you know, this new board game space. So, talk to me yeah. about that. Kind of let's roll your background, your bio into <laughs> what we're talking about today with the with the topic. So, how how has that background in software engineering led to some things now? Yeah. Well, actually, I started off um, as a field tester for BlackBerry. Um, I don't know if you remember those old commercials of the person walking around being like, can you hear me now? Yeah. That was literally my job. Wow. I had to go to really remote areas in Seattle and call someone else's phone and be like, can you hear me now? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was other stuff, but that was one of my favorite things. So I started in testing then. And then once I graduated from university, I didn't want to become a developer. I love coding. Uh, like I love code, but I don't love to code. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all verb of it kind of freaks me out. So uh, I was trying to figure out what to do, and testing came to mind. So I I joined a small little startup, and at that time, I was the only tester at that company. 
uh, and I learned everything from the ground up. I had to teach myself everything about agile testing, sprint testing, um, and it was an amazing experience. Uh, I went from there. I built, helped build that uh, QA department, went to another company, helped them grow their QA department, and then actually ended up going back to that original company. At that point, they had grown a decent amount, and I really helped take them uh, another step forward. And I'm still in touch with the people over there and the things they're doing. I'm so happy to see the improvements they're making. And that at that company, QAs aren't the bottom of the totem pole. In most software companies, they are. Over there, they are respected. They had a voice. And that's where it should be. Because as we all know, testing is so important. Yeah. And uh, if you put those people at the bottom of the totem pole, they're not going to value their job. They need to be equal members with the entire process. So I've been in the software testing game for 10 years or so, and I've learned so much, and I've always been about how do I apply my professional career into my hobbies, into my passions. So for a long time, I've been looking at how do we test video, uh, board games, card games, just like we do software. So that's been what I've been pursuing for 10 years now, and yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, very cool. Now. You talk about you live in Seattle, you're working with the startup and all this. I like to think you were working at Amazon back when Bezos <laughs> was selling books out of his garage. That's what I like to think, but I don't know if that's the case. Uh, real quick, what is a QA? So uh, quality assurance. Uh, so some companies call them software test engineers. Uh, so I was I like quality assurance because my job was literally to assure quality at every step of the way. Yeah. So I wasn't just testing the software. I was making sure my philosophy is quality people make quality products. So my job wasn't to test the software. It was if I found an issue, help the person who made that pro that bug and help them learn how to not make it again. Because the last thing I want to do is find that bug again. Yeah. So uh, I like the title Quality Assurance. That's the one I wore with pride. Uh, but software test engineer pays more. So. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Now let's talk about how some of the, the things you learned in that job have led to kind of the things that you're, you're doing now with, with board games and card games. Yeah. So one thing to really note is that the software testing industry is very fledgling. Um, everyone, there are a lot of people who are leading the industry and they're teaching us so much, but everyone's still trying to figure it out. And the beauty of that is there's so much room to experiment. Uh, so, yeah, the the idea of the testing that you're doing with software, especially in the agile space, you're trying to always ask three questions. How do we test the past? How do we test the present? And how do we test the future? So you're talking about how do I take one process which can make sure that everything we've done in the past is working, everything we're currently t working is still working, and how do we mitigate any potential issues in the future? And that's where playtesting is really focused on. Uh, I like to equate playtesting in the board game space to um, exploratory testing in the software space. They're one and the same. And the big goal is to make sure that you're continuously learning, you're continuously uh, adding value to your product, but you're also mitigating issues that may arise in the future. 
Yeah, for sure. And you bring up a good point because it's, it's one thing to have something that's not working or have something that is working and then you, you fix some things and it changes what's working. So for instance, you know, I've got this one mechanism, this one system that's perfect, but I get these other ones that are broken. And so I fix the broken ones and in fixing the broken ones, I break the perfect one. And like this, it's like this yes. back and forth process over and over and over again of trying to make yeah. sure everything, it's almost like Bugs Bunny when the ship <laughs> is sinking and like he's got his fingers and all these holes and he's like got his toes. It's like, I feel like that's what playtesting is sometimes where you're just trying to keep the ship it afloat. Is and all these new holes keep popping up. And so it's, it's really interesting. But let's let's talk about the importance of playtesting. Uh-huh. You, you mentioned Agile. I want to get to that in, in a little while. But first, let's kind of go down to the just basic of all basics. Why is this important? Why is this something that people need to put in the utmost of, of priority? Uh, in essence, I would say the biggest reason testing, not just playtesting, testing in general is important, is it's confirmation. It's being able to say, I built something and it works. Right. It may not work the way you expect it to, but it works. Right. And if it's not working, can you figure out why and can you make it work again? Right. So if you're making a game and you're not testing it, you're basically saying I made something, but I don't care if it works. I don't even know if it works. It's just there. And who wants to buy a product like that? Would you buy a car that has never been tested? (laughs) Would you buy anything that's never been tested right it's you're basically huge gamble that it's going to be good at all right yeah Yeah, definitely and what's interesting about games you know every game idea you ever come up with it lives in your notebook is easily the best game ever made like if you think (laughs) i have the best game ever made inside my notebook and then you put it on a table and play test it and you go i have made the worst game in the history of games you know it's it's where you find out does this thing work or not and yeah. 99.9 repeating percent of the time, it does not work. It does not work <laughs> yeah. at all. And so playtesting is where you kind of have that, that trial by fire, right? Yeah. Um, and something you kind of touch on there is you put it, when you put it on the table, uh, oftentimes you, you're putting it in front of other people. And one thing that people don't understand as a designer, as a developer, this is the same problem with software as it is with game design, is you develop tunnel vision. You start looking at your product in one way and only one way. And you're like, of course this works. Of course this works. And then someone else looks at it and it's like, what are you writing? (laughs) It's like one day you're writing English, the next day you're writing Latin. But to you, it makes sense. But to everyone else, it means nothing. Uh, So we have the same issues with Genesis. I've had the same issues with every software, right? Like, it's just the reality of it that people get that tunnel vision. And that's why it's so important to put it in front of new eyes, new people all the time. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've playtested the game by myself or just me and my wife. And it's gone really, really well. And I feel really good about it. And I put it in front of other people. And then they play it in a stupid way. It's like, why are you playing my game that way? That's dumb. Why would you do that? But you can't say that. They're not playing a dumb way. Your game is broken. They're not broken. Yeah. And so, but you don't learn those things until you actually get it yeah. in front of, like you're saying, new eyes and new people. Now, this is something yeah. J.R. Honeycutt talked about. You know, the day a game comes out, it's going to have, hopefully, if you've done your job right with marketing and sales, it's going to have more people playing it than at any time during yeah. playtesting. Right. And so you're going to have all these people who are going to play the game in ways that you did not expect. You did not figure that they would. And so Uh playtesting helps you mitigate how many problems you're going to have when the game actually comes out. Every game's going to have issues. Every game's going to have a a random strategy that some guy out in the middle of nowhere goes, hey, what if you do this? And he figures out how to break your game. But you're trying to mitigate that as much as possible. Right. And Uh so what's great about software is you can put out a patch and it's fixed today. Right. You can put out the 1.1 version. But with board games, you can't. And so yes. I think that's another thing that makes it so important to get it right because you can't just put out the, the patch, right? Yeah. It takes 
six months to get the thing printed and shipped. And so, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about that as far as the the, the struggle, right? Because yes, it's impossible to test it enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, what are some things you've learned as far as like how to know how much testing is yeah. is good enough? So this is something that's going to come uh, kind of controversial to some of the people listening out there, but uh, I hold in strong belief that the idea is nothing's perfect, but everything should be good enough. And you need to set your standard of what is good enough. Uh, When I sat with my uh, development team and we would make a new card or a new aspect of the game and they're like, oh, but we can't think of every single possibility. Well, no, of course you can't think of every single possibility. You can't test every single possibility. There's infinite permutations, especially with a collectible card game with new sets coming out. There's infinite amount of permutations. But the question is, is it good enough? Have you, do you have a process in place to raise your confidence to a point that's saying, if I release this game now, if I release this new card now, I am confident, I'm comfortable with the results. And that's what it is, because you're never going to be 100%. My old CTO, Sorb, used to tell me um, when we'd release a new update to our software, he's like, what's the best release we've ever had? And people will give off different answers. And he would say, no, the best release is this release. It should always be this one that we're in the highest confidence of. And if we're not, we shouldn't be pushing it. We shouldn't be delivering it. So what is your process in place to raise your confidence that high? Right. Yeah, that sounds really good. Now let's talk about your process. Now tell me, tell me about how you know the thing that you've developed as far as this stuff goes. So my process, it's it's very different from what I've heard a lot of people when it comes to their testing design. Uh, I've borrowed very much from a software testing process. This isn't going to apply to every game, but I think there's tidbits that can work. Um, I'd like to work through a pipeline. So each phase of the pipeline needs to answer a given question. So our pipeline has about five phases in it, and we're asking things, okay, does everything in the game that has been working currently still work? So that's a really big question. And then we have a bunch of sub-questions that uh, ask that. You know, uh, Can you still win the game if this new card is created? Uh, can you still beat your opponent? Can you do X, Y, and Z, right? So you have that first part of the pipeline. Then goes to the second part of the pipeline. And at that point, you're trying to get as many game designer opinions as possible. So you take the card and you pitch it to the rest of the game design team. And everyone says, I like this, I don't like that. And they refine it a little bit. Our third process is, how does the card actually look? Because no matter how much math you put behind your game, no no matter how many formulas you have to figure out if the card works or not, uh, the moment it hits the table, it's going to act completely different. So you actually have to play with it. So we go through the process where the person who created the card plays with it first, then someone else on the team plays with it, then we let it rest for a week or two, and then we play with it again, right? Uh, Then the next phase is the closest thing we have to a launch before we actually launch. So what we're trying to do on a more regular basis is have sanctioned proxy tournaments where people can come into the tournaments and play with cards that haven't been released yet. And then we watch which cards are being played really heavily and we ask ourselves why. Or we ask them, why are you playing this card so much? And then they see something we never did. And that's where we get that level of confidence put in. Um, 
along the way, we also do pass it through some people who are really good at math and say, oh, if I just run 10 copies of the card or four copies of the card, I'll win every single game. And you're like, oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have there's software that we use at times to say, okay, your probability of getting this many copies is at this percentage and yada, yada, yada. Um, that's not as necessary in my opinion, but it does help. Uh, and then our last phase is putting it all together and actually doing a small kind of release thing. Like, can we run it in a tournament or something like that, right? Uh, and just get people's reactions. We go through these phases, and I call it a pipeline because that's what we called it in the agile software world. Uh, you have your software design pipeline where you're testing at every phase. Every phase does a particular task and tests that task, and then integrates it to the next part and tests it again, and it integrates it again and tests it again. Uh, so I borrowed the same principles we use there in software and just put it into our game. Yeah, very cool. Now, it sounds like your process is extraordinarily collaborative, which I love. I love that you mm -hmm. have multiple people that you put something yeah. in front of them and say, hey, what do you think? Because I think that's yeah. something a lot of designers struggle with. You know, they design by themselves, and so they just they, they ask themselves, well, what do I think? And again, yeah. like, you need more people. Uh, how many people do you have on the team? Uh, I'm very, very lucky. Um, I So I lead the design team. I have three more designers, uh, all of them amazing people. Um, then we have a few more who are more on a voluntary basis. They do a lot more of the proxy playtesting. Uh, I have two guys who are statisticians, so they do a lot of the number stuff. And in our community, uh, about 10 people. Wow. So uh, it's growing slowly, but it's one of those things I was very blessed with. When I first started, though, uh, what I would do is it was me and my three best friends, and that was really great, but it wasn't enough. Uh, my brother and his friends started getting involved and we would hold weekly uh, testing events at my brother's place. And I'd buy them food, I'd do whatever it takes to make them happy. And a lot of times they just wanted to hang out, but I was watching the sessions as they went on. And then uh, eventually I started going to Friday Night Magic, meet people there and tell them, hey, I'm making my own game, you want to come test it? Yeah. And then they'll test it. Uh, remember, if you're trying to get people to come test your games, Treat them like humans. Right. Treat them, better, them right? first. Yes. <laughs> be their friend first. Don't just be like, hey, random stranger, you want to test my game? No. Be like, we've been hanging out for a little while, or I've seen you around here, or get to know them, right? Be their friend first, and then you'll get, find that uh, depending on the people you meet, a lot of the times I love the people who are brutally honest and just tell their opinion straight out. Uh, those people are really great. And the people who aren't, there's still a lot of really valuable information you can find just from the way they play, right? Just from watching them, right? Yeah, definitely. Now, one thing that you just mentioned is, is great is you found people that were potential testers that already loved the kinds of games that you were making. That's another thing is, yeah. is you found Magic players and your game is a CCG. It's got some... Even if it's totally different from Magic, it still has a similar vibe of Magic because it's cards, it's a CCG, those kinds of things. And so I think that's another thing that a lot of designers struggle with. They struggle with finding people who actually like the game that they're making. And that can like really yeah. mess up your testing. If you're playing the game with a bunch of people who hate... Like, I'm working on a dexterity game. If I play with a bunch of people who hate dexterity games, that's going to screw up my data, so to speak. Yeah. And so what would be your advice as far as dealing with that, right? Because maybe it's actually probably yeah. good to play with mm -hmm. players that hate your, you know, that style of game just to kind of yeah. get their reaction. Because, you know, every yeah. gaming group is going to have people who hate that style of game. And so it's good to get those voices. But what would be your advice as far as dealing with people that maybe really hate your game and are messing up the data and also really love your style of game and are messing up the data on the other end? Like, what would you say? <laughs> 
my qu- my biggest question at that point is how valuable are those people to your data, right? Uh, so the way I look at it is the people who should be testing your product are the people who are your target audience when you're trying to sell the product, right? If you're trying to get people who hate your game to test your game and tell you what's wrong with it, then the people you're going to end up selling it to are people who hate your game. And those people who hate your game aren't going to be the ones who want to buy it. And they're going to say everything anyway. Oh, everything. I hate everything about it. (laughs) If it's the people who love your game, uh, then you got to find a way to get them to be honest about their response. But they're the people who are going to want to buy your game. They're the people you should be listening to, right? If I'm trying to make a software for, just say, doctors, I'm going to go talk to doctors about this and get doctors to test it. I'm not going to be like, hey, you work at a bank teller. Why don't you test myself? No, it doesn't make sense. You want your target audience to. Um, In the testing space, that's really hard because sometimes you're not your target audience. But in this case, I bet you you are. When you're making your own game, you're probably your own target audience. So find like-minded people. And the best part about finding like-minded people is it's probably going to be easy to make friends. Yeah. <laughs> They're like-minded people. And if you go to conventions, there's so many people there. Um, find games that are similar to yours. Find people who are playing those games and then reach out to them, right? Uh, one of the best advice I got about design in general uh, was from an old friend, Tom. And he said, um, there are three C's when it comes to design. Um, competitors, comparables, and corpses. Uh, he said, you're going to find about 5% of the information you need from your competitors, about 3% of, of the information you need from your co- uh, comparables, so games that are similar to yours but not exactly yours, uh, and then that leaves 92% of that information from corpses, games that have failed. And if you go and look for uh, those games and you find the people who made those games, ask them why it didn't work out. How? Where did their testing go wrong? And you'll probably figure out what to avoid, right? It's finding things in that similar space that's really important. Yeah, definitely. And that, I feel like just as game designers, a lot of those corpses are your own games, the games that <laughs> yes. didn't work out for you, right? <laughs> I, we all yeah. probably have 100 corpses just sitting on our own uh, <laughs> shelves and whatnot. Hey, you yeah. mentioned something just now and talked about uh, playtesting at conventions. Talk to me a little bit about that. What does that look like, and how is it different than maybe playtesting at your local game store or having friends over on a Saturday night? What are the differences? So it was... I'm in a very different space because for CCGs, uh, conventions aren't necessarily my friends. Uh, They're a lot better when you get bigger. So we didn't do a lot of testing in um, conventions. But the thing that I loved about conventions, so I was at Breakout Con, I think it was in March in Toronto. And um, the thing that was awesome about it was having those game rooms. And you walk in and you just see hundreds of people playing. And sometimes you need to take off your designer hat or your tester hat or whatever it is and just go and meet people, go play a few games. And then you make those contacts, you make those friendships, and then those people can help you out in the future, right? Uh, So, and the other thing about a convention is people are there for a very long time. I've seen game rooms that are open 24 hours during the convention. Uh, Sometimes people get bored of the game they're playing and they want to try something new. And if you're like, hey, I got a game that I'm partway through, do you mind testing it? people are much more likely to say yes if they've been sitting with you for an hour already and got to know you compared to you just showing up out of nowhere and being like, hey, you want to test my game? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, It comes back to that whole thing. Recognize that these people are humans and they want to make friendships and they want to meet new people. So uh, don't always try to sell or don't always try to 
approach your those players as though they're lab rats or something like that to test your game. No, they're people and make friends with them first, right? Yeah, definitely. It's something that uh, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about. With and he wrote a book some years ago. He talked about jab, 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 right hook, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this concept that you give, you give, you give, you give, yeah. and then eventually you ask for something in return, yeah. and people are so much more likely to do it. Now, at the same time, I'm yeah. not saying go in there and play people. I'm not saying go in there with this like no. ulterior no. motive of, of, you know, I'm only going to do these nice things so that you'll do something <laughs> nice for me. That's not what this is about. But it is no. about giving before you ask to receive. And because, like yes. you're saying, people are much more likely to help you out once they know you, once they've hung out mm-hmm. with you a little bit, once you, you play a game yeah. with them, especially to other designers. Like, if you offer to play their game, like, if you know somebody's yeah. like, hey, do you have any prototypes? Oh, yeah. And you play theirs, and then at the net, you go, hey, you, want, you got you got an you know, 30 minutes to play mine, and they are much more likely to reciprocate. And so that, that goes a long way, especially uh, at conventions. And now, when you are playtesting, kind of a different topic here, but when you are playtesting, uh-huh. what are you watching for? As you, as you watch the, the people playing the game, you know, are you taking notes? And, and kind of what are you looking for as they're just experiencing the game? So the first thing I would say is, why are you doing the test, right? If you're walking in there without a clear answer of why you're doing the test to begin with, you're going in there blind, and that's really bad, right? Um, you need to know why you're doing any level of testing. Are you trying to understand um, people's enjoyment? Are you trying to understand their co- ability to comprehend the game? That will dictate what notes you want to take. The second part to it is if you're walking out of a testing session without any physical handwritten or typed notes, you wasted your time you need to be walking away with some sort of level of notes. Um, it's, it is the output of testing, right? The input is, uh, why am I doing this? What materials do I need? And who do I need to get together? And the output is the notes. Uh, so yeah, I take a lot of notes on how are people reading the cards that they're playing with. Uh, so if I'm, so the first thing you want to test in your game is, is it fun, right? So come in there saying, okay, the thing I'm testing today is, is this game fun? Who do I want to get? Well, I want to get people who haven't played the game before and are, enjoy this style of game, right? Then you give them the game, and then you need to have measurables of saying, okay, what defines fun? One thing that I love to define fun with is, will they play a second? Will they play the game a second time without being prompted, right? And if that gets checked, then yes, it is fun. And then I take the ratio of how many test sessions I did, how many times did they say yes, and I say, okay, we're at a 87% fun level, right? <laughs> and so I have a lot of variables. I'm also thinking, all right, within the next three days, do these people talk to me about the game they just had? Because that's a fun level. If they left them not just with a happiness, but with a memory that they like to revisit, that's a level of fun too, right? So if you know what your why is, you can figure out your measurables to test that and that's the stuff you should be taking notes of uh you talked in a previous podcast about recording people and taking other notes that's really great too because sometimes what you're trying to what happens in the session isn't what you're trying to test so you might ignore it but then you come back to it later and you're like oh wait that was a great tidbit yeah i should really pay attention to that i should have an entire testing session around that so Really knowing what you're trying to test is the most important part about it all. But yeah, I do walk away with a lot of notes. I kind of scold my game design team now whenever they sit down to play test and they don't deliver me notes <laughs> because what was the point? Why did you get together, right? Uh, I need to have something concrete. Uh, so yeah, that's where I'd rest with that. 
Yeah, exactly. And you bring up a great point. And it's I think at its core, it's there's a difference between playing your game and testing your game. And the difference yeah. is, are you are you going into it with a scientific method kind of viewpoint, or are you going into it mm-hmm. just to have some fun? I mean, you want to play your game, you want to show the game to new people, and that's cool. Both of those things are fine. But yeah. just for people to understand that those are very, very different things. Because when you go into it with a scientific mindset, you go into it to test something. Like you're, you've got a yes. hypothesis, and you want to determine is your hypothesis correct or false and why is it correct and why is it false and like you go into it with with an idea of what you're trying to figure out like for instance the other night i was, I was playtesting this space game and i know or i knew going in i had given players too many things to do and <laughs> so like i knew that going in and uh, almost on purpose and so the point of that test was to figure out what are the things that they never used or what are the things yes. like what are the actions that they had access to that they didn't use or only use once or twice. And and as soon as I figured those things out for the next test, it's like, all right, I'm taking all those actions out. Here's a much more streamlined list of actions. And now I'm still like, all right, what can I still take out? Can I take out one more of these, you know? And so, but I'm going into it thinking, all right, what am I trying, how how am I going to get rid of these certain things? And so it's been very uh, focused in my, in my, Mm -hmm. what I'm watching for, how, you know, how players are reacting to things. What are what are some of the other things that you've gone into a playtest like looking for? Like some of those hypotheses that you're like, all right, I'm trying to figure this thing out. So uh, you actually said something that I love to do, which is testing through elimination. Uh, and I say that because I have a rule where if I'm trying to teach someone a game and I forget a particular section of the rules more than two times in a row, I cut that section of the rules out of the game. Yep. Uh, so sometimes it's not even looking at other people. Sometimes it's looking at yourself, right? Um, but the things I look at the most, especially where my game's at right now, is how long does it take for people to grasp the concept? Uh, so my big thing is how many times do I have to repeat the same rules, right? If I'm repeating the same rule on attacking uh, three times within the same game, well, then there's a problem there, right? There's a bug there, and it's with me, not with the player, right? Don't always assume that it's the player's fault. No. They're your target audience. Right. They don't know anything about the game. You have tunnel vision. The problem is usually with you uh, so or with your game, per se. Uh, the other thing I look at is um, so comprehension uh, and playability. Like, are after two rounds of the game, do they want to finish the game or do they want to leave? That's a good question to kind of ask. Uh, so those are the big things I'm, I look at. And then I guess in the early days, the big thing I was testing was... Um, how uh, the pace of the game i'm not a huge fan of games where you sit around doing nothing for a very long time that was one of my big concerns with most collectible card games out there uh and i i wanted a game where you were constantly involved so i would watch a people a group of people play and i would try to observe how often do people sit around and like go get a glass of water or something like that do they have to say hey can we hold on one second i need to get some water Mm -hmm. or are they just getting up and leaving right (laughs) Um, so you have to if you know what your measurables are then it helps a lot with trying to determine if your test was a success or a failure definitely another thing i've been doing lately is trying to figure out strategies and and even asking playtesters hey do me a favor this time, try this, like, kind of general, not very specific necessarily, strategy and see what happens, 
right? Mm. Or even I'll go into it and go, okay, I'm going to play as this faction, and I'm going to do yeah. this thing that maybe normal players wouldn't do, but I'm going to do this over and over and over again, that maybe these same couple actions, and I'm just going to see how many points I cool. score, and if I'm close to winning, because if I'm close to winning, <laughs> maybe something's broken, right? Maybe something needs yeah. to be adjusted, or some, you know, some balancing needs to happen. And so going into it with a specific strategy in mind that might break the game, because more than yeah. likely, you're not the only one that's going to think of that strategy. Right? <laughs> There's probably going to yeah. be a whole bunch of other people. And so going into it with like certain strategies uh, in mind and just seeing what happens. Another thing you brought up that's a really interesting thing that that I feel like people need to be more aware of is when people continue to talk about your game afterwards, that is such a good sign. That is such a good <laughs> yes. sign. Like uh, the other day I, I had some uh, friends of mine that I work with, some other teachers here at the school, and they came over and they play tested the game. And the next day, so this is a dexterity game, the next day one of the, my, my friends and colleagues, he oh. came up to me and he, he's like flicking his – his, his middle finger, he's, he's like he's thumping something. He goes, I've been practicing all day, man. I'm going to be ready for you next time. I'm, I'm, I'm go- I got this dice flicking thing down next time. And But he was talking about the game. And it's like, okay, this is good news. Yeah. This means he yes. had an enjoyable time and he wants to do it again. And so when people are asking, hey, what about that game? Man, That that's like the best thing in the world for a designer to hear. And so yeah. any, anybody listening to this, if people want to talk about your game, please take that as like the biggest compliment yes. in the world and because they want to get it back yeah. to the table. And- also realize that there's something amazing there. Even if they're talking about bad aspects of your game and yep. they're saying, oh, I really hate that mechanic. That means they went home and they continued to think about your game. Yep. That means that they want to see your game improved, right? So listen to that. That type of feedback is really, really good to have. And uh, yeah, good or bad, it is something for you to kind of digest and figure out, all right, even with yours and the person flicking their finger and you say, all right, they must have really loved that aspect. Is there some way? Is there some way I can hone on to that experience of the game and enrich that part of the game? Right. Everything is an opportunity to learn. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It also probably means you have a good tester that you want yeah. want to give a little little extra pizza to next time because that, that yeah. person's valuable and you want them to keep coming back. Yes. All right. So let's let's kind of keep talking about your process. Do you use any kind of forms or like feedback forms or Google forms or anything like that for players after after they do a a play test? Yes and no. Uh, sometimes if it's a very... So I like to say testing is very much on a spectrum. Actually, I'm borrowing this a lot from James Bach. And if anyone doesn't know who James Bach is, uh, I highly recommend going and listening to him. He talks a lot about software testing, but his he isn't talking about software testing. He's talking about testing. Yeah. And it's the same testing you do for software as you do for science, as you do for uh, v- board games and video games, anything. Anything related to testing, it's the same principles. So he talks about the spectrum where it's scripted versus unscripted testing. How much of your testing are you have you pre-planned before you started it? And how much have you just winged it as you went through? And uh, when it's a situation where a bunch of people are testing, but they're just winging it as in a proxy tournament, I don't want them to fill out too many forms because that takes away from their experience. That takes away from the purpose that they came in with. But if it's a very structured one, I want everything dictated. So my game design team, I want them to get to a point where they walk away with having spent, you know, more time on the notes and the annotations than they did with the actual game itself. Right. So you got to think about that spectrum and the tools you use. There is no one answer. The only tool you, tools you should be using are the tools that are working. Yeah. Don't think that there is some magical tool out there that's going to solve everything. There isn't. Um, I personally believe a lot in pen and paper. It's one of the most classic, and trust me, it does work. <laughs> 
but um, Google Forms work really great, having surveys, having just anything that people can fill out. Capture as much data as you can. If you can film it, film it. If you can take pictures, do that. Uh, the more data you have to go back on later, the more beneficial it is for you. Yeah, for sure. Now, what was that guy's name again? James Bach. Uh, how do you spell his last name? B-A-C-H. Okay, cool. Now, does he have like books or podcasts? Like, well, How would people find that content? Uh, if you just Google search him, he's very well known in the software testing industry. Actually, he pioneered a lot of the software testing industry. Um, he has a lot of YouTube videos. He has some podcasts um, and a couple of books published as well. Very cool. So that might be a good place for people, especially people that are just yeah. maybe now getting into this. Like, what is testing? What does this look like? How do I do yes. this? That might be a really good resource for people to look at uh, um, to figure some of this stuff out. So he's one person. The other person I would reference is James Whitaker. He was the, he was the, what do you call them, VP of testing for Microsoft. He worked for Apple and Google at one point or another. He's been senior tester in all those companies. And he's also written a lot of really, really good information. So uh, I do recommend both of them. Yeah, awesome. All right, let's talk about blind play testing. Have you done much blind play testing? Uh just to define that, that's where you give someone the game and you're not there at all, and then you just get the feedback later. Yeah, typically. Uh, I haven't done a lot of it, but I have heard a lot of anecdotes of uh, friends taking the game to their friends, mm -hmm. playing it, and coming back with feedback. Okay, well, I mean, that's uh, that's blind playtest. Let's yeah. go with that. What yeah. has been your experience? Like, What have you learned through that process, or what kind of advice would you give for people that are wanting to get into it? Once again, it comes down to, I think... A key there is relationship building, trying to find the right people and trying to get it, uh, get a hold of them. Uh, there's a lot of resources out there of people who can do that for you. I wouldn't trust them as much as I would a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the reason behind that is with the moment money is involved, uh, the entire philosophy, the entire process of it is sullied in a way. Uh, it's not as pure, right? Uh, the other part of it is you don't get as much pure data from it. Uh, it's all anecdotal, uh, unless you're asking them to record it, and that could get awkward at times. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it is very, very useful because it can show you what uh, the people who are two steps away from you experience the game as. Uh, so my example, one of the things I didn't know, uh, all the people who I taught the game to directly and they taught their friends directly, they knew the rules really well. Yeah. And I thought my rule books online and not having to print a physical copy because one, they're expensive, two, trees. Um, so I didn't want to print physical rule books. And uh, so I thought this was fine. It's been working. Friend of a friend, two steps away. They understand the game really well. But once they got three, four steps away, they were starting to lose that knowledge really, really quickly. So having some sort of reference sheet inside the box was very important. I had to make that sacrifice for the trees. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like sometimes you don't see what it is that far away. So what I would recommend if you're going to do something like that is uh, for people who are further away, they should have a way to contact you directly with their concerns. So have some sort of contact us email address or a Facebook contact page uh, or some sort of public Google form that they can fill out. If they are like, hey, I just played this game. I think it's really cool, but I really didn't understand this aspect of it or this rule kind of seemed confusing. 
uh, have some way for them to submit it anonymously uh, so that they don't feel like they have to get involved in this giant ecosystem of testers and stuff like that. Uh, it can be a lot cleaner that way. Uh, so that's one bit. The other is if you do go use some professional level of that blind playtesting, uh, check their credentials, check what, what they've done in the past, and then contact the people who they've worked with and ask them how that feedback was. I've worked with a lot of outsourced testers, and their website may seem like the website of dreams, and then you work with them, and like, this is not worth it. <laughs> so it is a bit of a nightmare at the moment you start outsourcing it. Uh, but then the... Sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but another thing I remember reading at a time where the, eventually your testing level kind of plateaus. Mm -hmm. uh, the first 10 people you test with are the most valuable. And then each person you add to there, I think from 10 to about 50 people, uh, the new information you're learning starts plateauing quite a bit. And then after 50 people, it doesn't really become very useful. So if you're going to add more people to that ecosystem of testers, have a good reason for it. Say, I'm adding this, I want to add these people into my ecosystem because they are three steps away. I want to add these people to my ecosystem because they actually have to read the rule book before playing the game. Uh, have a reason about why you're adding these people before you just do it kind of randomly. Yeah, definitely. I think you're, we're going back to a very similar concept of just being intentional, right? And knowing what you're doing and, and why you're doing it and not just kind of doing it because you're supposed to or going doing it because somebody <laughs> yes. said you should. But no, like having a reason to do it. And now you brought up another good point. Yeah. Something I found a lot of success with is blind testing the rule book. Like even if they don't play the game, it's just yeah. like I, I've given rule books to friends and I've said, all right, here, just, just go learn this and, and then, <laughs> and then come back. And I want you to teach me how to play the game. And it's yes. been so great because they come back and they, you know, they take the rule book and they'll take out all the components and they'll start telling me all these things. And what's funny is they'll look at me like, am I right? Am I wrong? And I just have okay. a very straight face. And I'm like, okay, yep. so this is how we do this and this is how we do that. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is completely wrong and that's not at all how the game's <laughs> supposed to be played. Okay. And I'm taking like mental notes and all this stuff about what yep. I need to fix that. And I need to fix that sentence and the way that was worded was backwards yep. or whatever. And so blind testing the rule book has been super effective yep. uh, in, in helping to make a better game because, I mean, if your rule book doesn't work, your game doesn't work. Mm. It's just kind of the nature yeah. of, of our industry. And so, yeah, I definitely However, recommend that. The thing I would like to uh, insert there yeah. is there is something a little bit different with games that have a competitive level versus games that don't. Yep. Because if, just say, uh, Magic, for example, how many people actually learned Magic through reading the rule book? That's a great point. I know I didn't. No <laughs> any of my very, friends very, that I know of. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I know 90 or so people who play Magic, and I asked them, and there was like one or two people who read the rule book. Yep. You learn from your friends, or you learn from the store owner, or you learn, learn at an event. And then the tournaments course correct you. So that's why, even though I have invested a lot of time in my rulebook, and my editor, who works with me a lot on the rulebook, can attest we put a lot of effort into it, at the same time, I know it's not as valuable as a resource to a lot of the players compared to the tournament scene or who's teaching you. So the most important part is can, if you know what your how your game is going to be taught, how that's going to be spread, you put your effort into the thing that has the highest return on the investment, yeah. right? So I spend way more time making sure that people understand the rules and that they walk away from every single demo session with a full comprehension of the game than I would on the rule book. Or I spend more time making videos of people playing a game or uh, doing uh, videos on how to play the game 
compared to the rule book because majority of the people who are learning the game, 90%, 95% aren't using the actual rule book itself. Yeah. Especially since Magic's rule book and even our rule book is written more like an um it's so detailed it's more like a textbook than yeah. it is a rule book and rule books are already hard enough to read once yeah. you add that textbook book level it becomes way more of a challenge so understand how that communication is being driven now a game like um maybe not monopoly i don't know anyone who's read the actual rules of monopoly <laughs> no one has that's why we all play it wrong as the children yeah, yeah. and it takes seven hours uh, and it's yeah anyway <laughs> But like a game like Catan, I know yeah. a lot of people who read the rule book of Catan, uh, that's their primary way of spreading the information. So invest majority of your time there, right? Invest your money and your research uh, research there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. It depends on the context of the game. Like you're saying, yeah. a game like yours, you might be better suited to put out videos about strategies and different ways yeah. to use different cards and stuff like that and uh, not so much worry about the finer details of, of the like the game rules, so to speak, like yeah. a game, like a worker placement or you know a strategy mm-hmm. game uh, would. All right, so let's, uh, let's go back to this whole agile thing. All right, that's something we've touched on a little bit here and there. This is something I am a little bit familiar with. I've heard it some, you know, and I know somewhat about it. But tell me about what agile is and then kind of okay. the ways it can be, uh, be used in game design. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the history of software. Um, so way back in the day, uh, the process for releasing a software would be, all right, on a given day, you're like, I have this idea for making a software. And then you go through your process however you want, and then on a later date, you release it. And that's a waterfall. You start off with the idea, it goes through design, it goes through the development, it goes through uh, testing, and then it go- gets released. It's strictly in one direction. It doesn't go back up at all. Uh, and this is how board games are often designed these days. You have the idea, you create the prototype, you do some te- uh, testing with it, and then you get the art together, and then you launch it, right? Uh, so that's what Waterfall was working. It worked really well for a lot of companies, but the between the day of conception and release was massive. It could take two, three, ten years to release a given software. And what it really meant was the companies that had money could release software, but the companies that didn't have money were kind of stranded in the dust. There's nothing they could do. So Agile came along of trying to solve two issues. One was to prioritize the people over the product. So making product for people, empowering the people in your company. Uh, And then the second part of it was how do we quicken this process to make the smaller companies more useful? So they decided to focus around one key rule, which is take one step, review what you learned in that step, and then choose do you want to stay on the current direction or change directions, right? So that's the whole entire idea of Agile is make one improvement review that improvement, and then decide, do you stick doing what you're currently doing or do you pivot? Uh, So how does that work in board game design? Uh, Well, a very key component to it is everything you do, you should be reviewing one way or another. So that reviewing can be testing, as we've been talking a lot about. It could be other things, like it could be an internal conversation with your team. Hey, we just implemented this new mechanic. It's changing our game from a... um, I don't know, a card game to a miniature game. It, does this make sense? Or we're now going from a LCG to a CCG or whatever, right? Um, you're reviewing that process every step of the way. The point of this is not to make large improvements 
just to figure out something's wrong and trying to dissect where you went wrong, but to make small improvements and know where you went wrong. Because if you only added one thing and now everything's broken, you know what broke it. It's that new thing, right? Uh, so that's the core of Agile. Uh, and the way I like to implement it in board games is always be testing everything you do from uh, adding in a new rule, adding in a new card, adding anything new into your game, you should have a way to test it. Uh, and you should have a way to test it with a live audience in a way, as in real people who are going to be playing your game. So if your playtest session is once every week, then every single week you should be bringing in one new chunk and your focus of your testing should be around that one new chunk. How does it impact the previous stuff that you've implemented and what doors does it close for future stuff you want to implement? Yeah, for sure. And this is something, and well, first of all, the whole idea of agile, it's, it's, it gets its name from being able to pivot fast, right? You're, you yes. have a lot more agility. You're not, you know, these two year lead times. And that's the thing about a lot of games, you know, I was talking to, you know, some publishers recently I interviewed almost a year ago and then they came back on the show almost a year later and their game almost has come out. Like it's almost to the table. Yeah. It's like, wow, that is such yeah. a long time that it just takes for the art and the games, you know, the development and the printing and the shipping and the fulfillment. Yeah. It just takes forever. And so we're, you know, in a, a waterfall industry, so to speak. But if, even if, even if that's the case for printing and manufacturing and, and shipping and all that, if you can just make your development process more agile, mm -hmm. right? And this is something I found a lot of success with, uh, both from being able to change on the fly and, and pivot, but also yeah. it makes things less overwhelming. Like whenever yes. I'm making a prototype, I never make the whole thing at once. I always <laughs> make one little piece and then I test that. Like I'll, if I've got a game that has combat in it, I will make just the mm -hmm. combat system and I'll test that. And then I'll make the movement system and I'll test yes. that. And I'll make the event cards and I'll test some of those. And, and then yeah. eventually I'll have all these pieces and I can put it all together and I can test the whole thing. But it's like eating yeah. an elephant, you know, just one bite at a time. <laughs> and it's so much... Uh, less, it's, it's so much uh, easier to get it to the table because yep. you're, you're doing one little step, one little step, and you're, you don't, yep. you're not looking at the giant thing that you have to eventually come up with. No, you just do one little yep. bite at a time, and it also allows you to pivot when you go, okay, this combat sucks. Yep. Okay, how do I fix yep. that? As opposed to sitting down and playing the whole game and going, wow, something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> right? Maybe it was yeah. the movement. Maybe it was the events. Like, no, no, it was this yes. one thing because that's the only thing I'm testing. And so that's what yep. I, I found a lot of success with. Yeah, and it also helps you learn. Um, one of the things I love to say is fail early, fail often. Um, and if you are testing in these huge gaps in between each other, like two months, six months, a year between your tests, then you can invest all this time in a year, go to test, realize, I don't like this game anymore. Yeah. I don't like this concept. And now you've stopped working on it, but you could have stopped working on it a lot earlier. And then... As we talked kind of earlier, every failed game is just a new approach for a future game, right? Yeah. Every failure is a success. Learning what you don't like is really important, and testing is a great way to find that. So I would say don't wait too long to do any testing. Don't wait too long to put it in front of people. And I would I'd say sacrifice the, um, what do you call that, the buildup of the release or the uh, you know how a lot of movies, they give you spoilers so that you get excited about that. I'd say sometimes it's better to sacrifice that excitement of the community to give, put it towards the completion of your game, yeah. making your game a lot more well-rounded. So even from uh, Genesis, before the game fully released, I had the entire card list out 
People knew every single card that was going to come in. There was no spoilers. There was nothing like that. I showed it to everyone because I wanted them to look through their card list and be like, this card seems broken. And I'm yeah. like, does it? Does it really? <laughs> All right, I need to focus around doing some more testing around this before we actually launch the game, right? And we fixed six or eight cards doing this, and it was massive. Uh, so you got to figure out what things you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah, for sure. This is another thing I'm looking at with uh, the space game is, you know, I've got four factions that come in the base game, right? And my goal is to make that the base game as good as it can possibly be. And I've got all these extra factions. I'm thinking, okay, this could be cool. And this idea and this little bit of a change in the mechanism and the way this faction works is, is different. But I want to hold those back for right now because I want, I, want, I want other people to play it. Like I want the base game to come out and then get some feedback from all, you know, and hopefully build up, you know, a few hundred people and, and people that enjoy the game and build up a little community and say, hey, what do you want to see? Like, what are, what are some of the interesting things you're seeing in the game? And how can I implement those yes. in new factions as opposed to just launching the game with eight factions and going, okay, yeah. here, you know, I hope you like all of these. <laughs> like, no, here's yeah. the four, and then let's make four new ones kind of together. And, and I've got these ideas, and you've got ideas, and let's figure this thing out. And I feel like maybe, mm -hmm. let's, let's try that. Let's see what happens with yeah. that. And uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if it works. I'll, I'll maybe have another podcast episode down the road and go, <laughs> this was a failure. Or, hey, this worked out well. And so we'll see. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I like the idea of... Um, what we call an MVP, minimal yep. viable product, yep. and just putting in the bare minimum and then adding in one little thing, testing it, add in one little thing. So when I started with Genesis, we had two cha one champion that was very, very basic and one creature and one spell. Okay, this game's great. Let's add in one more creature. All right, this is still good. Let's add in one more spell. Oh, no, that broke the game. <laughs> Let's fix this spell, yeah. right? If you add it in all at once, it you have no idea what's going to happen. Right. right. And you don't know which one's broken. You kind of have yeah. to start taking them out, and it takes yeah. forever, man. It takes so it's much longer to develop. Brutal. It'll make you want to give up on working on the game. And yeah. that's a shame, too. If you give up for the wrong reasons, yep. that's a shame. Absolutely. Well, I said, man, this has been awesome. Do you have any other advice or just kind of in general things you would tell somebody who's working through playtesting or getting ready to playtest a game? What would you tell them? Yeah. Uh, the three... These three words I say to my team all the time, learn, pivot, keep moving. I guess not words per se, but learn, pivot, keep moving. Uh, it's got us through the hard times when we go doing a testing session and it sucks. It got us through the great times when we're so high on uh, you know, euphoria that we're, we're saying, oh, nothing can go wrong. It's like, no, learn, pivot, keep moving, right? One step at a time. Uh, so, yeah, that's my biggest advice. Awesome. Well, man, we're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about the difference between designing a CCG versus a, you know, just other styles of games. I'm excited to kind of hear your uh, thoughts on that. But real quick, before we sign off, tell me about Genesis. Tell the folks about the, the game you got coming out right now. Cool. So Genesis Battle of Champions is a tactical collectible card game. So uh, I've had a lot of people explain it that it's like a collectible card game meets chess. So instead of just being someone behind your hand sending your creatures out to fight, you are a character on a board with your own health, your own unique stats, and you are defeating your opponent. So in, a lot of times in a collectible card game, if you're being pinned down by a small little creature, uh, oftentimes if you are just drawing your resources, there's nothing you can do about it. But here you actually have a weapon. You could be a fighter. You could be a mage. You could be a, a summoner. Uh, and it's my own type of take on the CCG meets RPG meets tactics uh, type of game. So yeah, check it out. The website is uh, genesisbattlechampions.com. And right now we're only launching in southern Ontario, but give us a little while, show us that you're interested, and we'll start reaching out to your area as well. Yeah, very cool. And I'm sure, I'm sure people can learn more about the game and they can sign up to get like newsletter updates and stuff like that, yep. right? 
Awesome. Well, man, it sounds really cool. I've enjoyed talking to you about this stuff. I hope the uh, the launch of all that and kind of as you roll this stuff out in, in Canada and then also in other places, I hope it goes really yes. well. And so yeah. good luck with that and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?